Over the last few weeks, we have heard some of the last parables that Jesus shared with the crowds before his arrest and crucifixion. The parable that explains the difference between those who are invited to the wedding feast and come, and those who receive the invitation but refuse to actually partake. Then the parable about those who say they are going to come to the wedding feast but are not ready for the long haul, for the long wait, making sure that they have oil for their lamps. And then the other week, of course, the parable about what to do while we wait for the Lord's return. What should Christians be about as Jesus tarries, goes to receive his kingdom, and then comes back? The very last parable, which we hear almost every single year on the last Sunday of the church year, has to do with the question of everybody else. What happens to the rest of the world? What is God going to do with the nations? We hear in 1 Corinthians, Paul say that all the dead will be raised, but what happens next? And that's why Jesus tells this account of the separation of the sheep and the goats, which really is not a parable. He mentions that it's separation like sheep and goats, but really it is a straightforward telling of what God intends to do on the final day how and by what criteria he is going to judge the world. The nations, that's what our text says. All of the nations of the world will be gathered together. And nations here are not states, per se. They're not flags. They're peoples. The peoples who are not Jewish. The peoples who are not Israel. The crowds that are listening to Jesus are the people of Israel. They're the people descended from Abraham, and they have had fixed in their mind exactly how the final judgment is going to look. And it's going to look like this. Israel gets saved, and everyone else gets condemned. What more is there to say? That's why Jesus has to explain that that is actually not the way God is going to look at the rest of the world. God brings all the nations before him, and the sun looks out over all of them, and he judges them based on the criteria of what they do for the least of these, my brothers. So if we have nations, who are the least of these, my brothers? That's the essential part of this account, right? Once you understand that, then you understand really the whole bit about what's going on. Now, unfortunately, most people have not been reading through the entire Gospel of Matthew when they get to this passage. It's read out of context. It's just a nice passage about being nice to people. Oh, I saw someone who was homeless. I gave them a home. I saw somebody who was locked up in prison. I went to visit them. That's all Jesus is saying. Be nice to people that are in need. If you've been reading through the entirety of the Gospel of Matthew, however, you know that the least of these, my brothers, has a very particular meaning. Remember how Jesus' teachings started. Now, it's kind of neat that this happens, that at the very end of the church year, even though we've been going through Matthew for months now, we actually go all the way back to the beginning at All Saints Sunday, and then quickly skip to the end here today. 
The first thing that Jesus preaches is what we heard on All Saints. It's the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who grieve. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the peacemakers. And last of all, blessed are you when people utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Because you bear my name. Jesus is setting up a division in the world based on who bears the name of Jesus and who lives out their lives as he lived out his life in the world and who does not. That carries them through all of Jesus' ministry, from Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 6 and 7, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, through 8 and 9 and 10, and now all the way through to Matthew chapter 25. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus commissions his disciples, his 12, as sent ones, as apostles, the ones who will bear his name in preaching the good news. And he tells them that they're going to be persecuted. The synagogues will not receive them. Governors will not be happy with them. No matter where they go, there will be people dogging their steps. But he gives them this promise. He says, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And, okay, now listen closely. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple... Truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Who are the apostles? They're prophets. They're righteous people. They're disciples, and they are, in Jesus' eyes, his little ones. His sheep that he sends out as in the midst of wolves to announce to the world that the way the world distributes rewards is not the way God distributes rewards. Those whom the world thinks are blessed are not the ones that God sees as blessed. While the world rejoices in those who are rich, in those who are happy, in those for whom everything is going well, God blesses those who grieve over the state of the world and who hunger and thirst for righteousness and desire that there be peace, even at the cost of their own lives and announce God's will through this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and bear his name on their foreheads, in their mouths, and in their actions. Well, that's a good definition of little one. What about the little least of these, my brothers? Who are Jesus's brothers? Well, that's everybody, Pastor. Everyone's Jesus's brother. Well, we could get away with that, except that Jesus in Matthew's gospel has also explained who his brothers are. While Jesus was speaking to the people, as recorded in Matthew chapter 12, behold, his mother's, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward 
his disciples, in other words, the little ones, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So I'm going to wrap this all up for you. What is the point of all of this? Why did I meander you back all the way through Matthew chapter 5, through Matthew 10, through Matthew 12? So that when you get to Matthew 25, near the very end of the gospel, the very last thing that Jesus is going to have to say, and Jesus says the nations will be judged by how they treat the least of these my brothers, you will understand he is speaking about us. He is speaking about how the world treats those who bear the name of Jesus in their lives as those who bear the name of Jesus. Not how the world treats you when you are cutting people off in traffic. Not how the world treats you when you take that last gift off the shelf that you know the person is running to try and get ahead of you. That's not what we're talking about here. We are talking about how the world treats you and I when we are acting in the capacity of Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. When we seek to do the kinds of things that Jesus did, when we seek to speak the kinds of words that Jesus spoke, how are we treated? Do people receive us warmly? Do people see that we are in need and make sure that we are fed? Do people see that we need a place to stay and make sure that we are welcomed into their home? Or do the nations reject us and say, take your gospel, your good news of salvation in Jesus Christ and take it somewhere else? That's what Jesus is saying in these last words in Matthew chapter 25. The nations will be judged by how They treat the least of Jesus' brothers and sisters, namely those baptized in his name, when they are acting as Christians. Which might raise one last question in your brain. What does this have to do with belonging to a church? Don't you need to belong to a church to be a Christian? It's interesting that one of our last theses that we studied way back when we were reading through Walter's Law and Gospel had to deal with the question of whether a person's salvation is dependent on whether they are a member of a true Christian church. Do you remember what the answer was? No. Their salvation is not. Salvation is always and only utterly dependent on our faith in Jesus Christ, in our belief that Jesus is God's Son, in our belief that he is the one who has reconciled us to his Father, that by the blood that he shed on the cross, all the ill that we have done towards God and towards each other has been atoned for, and that we have been forgiven, and that we have been set free. That is what our salvation depends on, Christ and nothing else. But where do we hear of this Christ? We hear of this Christ when we gather here. Where are we fed by this Christ? We are fed by this Christ at this altar. Where do we know that Christ comes to wash us clean? At this font. Is it possible, hypothetically, 
that somebody would see you acting in the name of Ascension Lutheran Church, bringing the good news to someone, proclaiming this message that I just shared with you, and love you for it, and welcome you in for it, and hate the Christ that you proclaim. I'd suggest to you it's pretty hard to imagine how that would be possible. Does that mean that because they don't have their seat in a pew here at the church that they are necessarily cut off from Christ? I don't know. We invite them to the wedding feast because we want them to hear the same message that you are hearing right now, the same message that empowers us, the same message that enables us to know that God is not a God who is ambiguous about his judgment, where we don't know where he's going to come down on our lives, where we don't know what he thinks about us, where he is clear at the cross that sins have been atoned for. We want all people to be able to revel in that message. On the flip side, if somebody sees you acting in the name of Christ and purposefully drives through the puddle on the side of the road to try and get you wet, what do, they, what do you think they think of your Lord? How will they justify that on the Day of Judgment? It is less important what magic card you have in your wallet than whether you have seen a follower of Jesus naked or hungry or homeless or in prison and have looked after them simply because they were one of Jesus' little ones. Whether you have invited people to the wedding feast, whether you've kept their oil burning, whether you have looked at somebody who is using their master's property the way he wanted it to be used and look after them than whether your card is signed with the right name. Lutheran pastors love to tell the old joke that if you are not into organized religion, we are the church for you because we are highly disorganized. That has always been the way. When we try and explain how it is that our congregations are run or how our synod is put together, people are mesmerized that anything can get done at all. You mean you vote on who your leaders are? You elect a council once a year? You meet together as lay people to try and decide how money is going to get spent and how bills are going to get paid? You as a congregation decide with the input of a pastor that lives in Pennsylvania somewhere who your pastor is going to be? And then you hope that it all works out? Yes, we are the world's greatest disorganized religion. There's some truth in the fact that whenever two or three humans are gathered, there is going to be disagreement and confusion. That's the way of the world. And yet still, hydro bills have to be paid, contractors have to be hired, leaky basements have to be fixed, floors have to be cleaned, garbage has to be picked up and emptied and put out at the street and properly triaged so that it goes in the brown bin and the green bin and the blue bin on the right day of the week so that Montreal doesn't leave it sitting out there because you put the wrong thing in the wrong bag. All of these things still have to happen. We need about $1,000 a week just to keep the lights on at Ascension Lutheran Church. When we pass that offering plate, it's like, what is that money for? Just to keep the heat in the building, the lights on, the insurance paid for, the building clean, it's about $1,000 a week. So why do we do all these things? Why do we do all of this stuff? If we could just be Christian without all of these trappings. 
We do it for the sake of the nations. We do it for the sake of the nations that they might become some of Jesus' little ones. That they might go from being those who are ta-ethna, the ethnics, which is the Greek word underlying nations, to becoming those who are Jesus' brothers and sisters, Jesus' little ones. We do it all for the sake of the nation so that those who have not yet heard the call of the shepherd, those who haven't yet been invited to the wedding feast, who have not yet RSVP'd, I'll be there. We do it for us to make sure that our oil is full and that our lamps are trimmed. We do it for both because the day of the Lord is coming. Amen, Lord Jesus, come quickly. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.